Hey, Fresh Capital listeners. In this episode, Albert and I are getting fashionable and talking about LVMH, more commonly known as Louis Vuitton. While one of the world's most well-known luxury brands, not many know that LVMH is actually a house of brands. That includes heavyweights like Tiffany's, Moen Chandon, Fendi, and Sephora. What makes LVMH different is that it has leveraged its broad stable of brands into a cohesive business that is vacuuming up market share in Asia. We break down what is making LVMH a success and how Asia is an essential part of the story. Keep listening and enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn about companies and investing. My name is Dan. Joining me as always, good friend Albert, how are you doing? Dan, I'm going good. Last night I had a dinner that a startup founder invited us to, so that was really nice. You know, it was a quite fun dinner. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I actually saw some of your videos on Insta with the dancing and everything. It, it looked like a good time. I thought you were at a wedding randomly or something. No, it was like a formal a formal sit-down dinner, which was very, very nice. Um, and they even put us, Joe and I, on the um, the adults' table like with the founder and their board, which like they didn't have to do either. So, that was, that was amazing. Nice. Nice. Well, today we're talking about LVMH. Uh, you know, one of the global leaders of luxury goods. Some might know them, you know, Louis Vuitton, that's the LV. Um, Moet and Hennessy is the M and H, and they've got a whole slew of high-profile brands underneath them. I'm really keen to get into it. Albert, we've just sort of put our heads together and discovered we only really own one thing from LVMH between us, so we're not doing too well, are we? (laughs) <laughs> no, not at all. I feel like everything on their website is just like multiple tiers above our price range of things we like to engage in. <laughs> but doesn't mean we can't talk about them. So, let's get into it. I mean, just to sort of start it off, there's, there's just so many household name brands that you'd know which are under this umbrella, which so which you wouldn't think of, you know. Some of these brands like Bulgari, Fendi, Givenchy, Tiffany... Tag her for watches, and then I mentioned some of the alcohol wines and spirits, Hennessy, Moet, and Chandon. Sephora, you know, makeup, that's all under the umbrella. So they've got so many of these brands within them. They're one of the largest luxury retailers. I think one of the world's richest people, Bernard Arnault, this is, is the sort of founder. It's a family business. Albert, what stood out to you just on, you know, first blush as you're looking at LVMH? Yeah, this is, uh, I think, a really interesting business because they've pursued a conglomerate or like a house of brands approach to their company, which, you know, we were talking about before is almost very like Eastern as an approach. Like we've talked about these giant conglomerates, like Sony is a great example of, you know, very much the same kind of company. It's not really something you'd see from a European company, but I think given the initial thesis around building a house of brands, it really makes sense for a luxury brand house to do it. Yeah, and uh, even some of the other comparisons you can draw with the Eastern companies is like Bechebol, which originally started as like a family business, and that's what LVMH has as well. Their current founder, chairperson, is going to 
stay on. He's 73 years old. They recently raised the maximum to retirement age from 75 to 80 so that he could stay longer. But there's, you know, this little succession fight brewing between I think his three or five kids, all who are sort of CEOs of individual brands within the company uh, to see who's going to be the next in line. So there's a whole subplot there, which is really, really interesting. But I wanted to sort of key on key in on something that you just mentioned there, Albert, which is the House of Brands approach. How have they done such a good job of having synergies across all these different brands, acquiring new ones, bolting them on to be the powerhouse that they are? Yeah, so a House of Brands, uh, if we just kind of walk through it, uh, is that they've just got a bunch of different businesses and brands under the umbrella LVMH. And so, some of the brands that you've mentioned, but what the company does is they acquire brands holistically, like Tiffany, which they acquired uh, in 2020. They also launch brands. So, they incubate and launch brands. A uh, key example, this is Fenty, which is a, the brand by Rihanna. And they also perform minority investments to access brands like Bulgari. So, they uh, performed a minority investment in that to get access to this brand as part of their house. And so, what this means is that for LVMH, they get access to all these different luxury brands. And then for the brands themselves, you know, they get the advertising and the halo effect that comes with being associated with the brand. So, that, that's kind of at a high level. The, the thesis behind having a house of brands is that you get economies of scale, like either through, you know, sharing technology, especially in today's age, you, you can leverage supplier and vendor relationships. Like if, if you're sourcing leather goods, uh, you can then put pricing pressure on your suppliers because then you're ordering a much higher volumes. And then specifically, the cost of customer acquisition generally goes down because you're sharing, you know, your customer base with the brands within your house. So, those are kind of the three key elements of why people choose a house of brands approach. I think the contrasting difference is what people call like a brand of houses approach, not a house of brands, brand of houses. And like Google's a great example of this where they've got, you know, their Google product, but within Google, you've got sub products like Google Mail, Google Drive, Google Maps, YouTube, Calendar, but they're not separate brands in Google. They're just differently branded Google products. Yeah, hence they they still retain the name Google within all of them rather than being sort of standalone. I think this is a really good one to sort of stick on a little bit and use maybe Tiffany as a bit of a case example. As you mentioned, acquisition in 2019, 2020, $16 billion. You know, Tiffany was sold at you know quite a high multiple at that time. So a lot of questions about whether LVMH got a good price for them. And everything you said there, Albert, I think about the back office economies of scales, et cetera, go towards can they justify that price? But on a more visible scale, it's been very obvious over the last couple of years the effect that LVMH has had on Tiffany, and that's in its sort of external profile. You know, they've been keyed into a lot of journalists. They've keyed into these uh, ambassador networks of high-profile people. You know, Tiffany launched sort of a collab with Beyonce and Jay-Z, Um, It was a lot edgier. It was a different sort of style than Tiffany was used to. And they very clearly took the approach. And I think they branded it as, you know, this isn't your mum's Tiffany anymore. They're going after the younger market, which LVMH does so well at. And, you know, that's the other thing which bring 
a standalone brand into a house of brands does is you get this you know marketing expertise this playbook to then really brush up and revamp a brand they did the same with bulgari when they acquired that i think in sort of the early 2010s its sales have doubled and profits rose fivefold since they acquired it and tiffany this year has just sort of had a record year um, compared to what it was you know pretty lackluster before so now you can see that lvmh has got form with taking some of these perhaps stalling brands and really brushing them up and making them superstars again i think something that we'll probably hit on a lot as we talk about this company is just the power of marketing when it comes to a luxury brand like you've got to build the halo effect and then you've got to maintain the halo effect and it's almost like an implicit network effect for a retail company because the more people you have uh, in terms of celebrities high-profile individuals who are wearing your brand, the more valuable it becomes, which means it's harder then for those ambassadors to start signing away and joining other companies. It makes it more attractive for individual consumers to to then join and buy the brand, which we'll talk about how that cascades into like the Asia region. But it's super interesting because it is like an implied network effect that's different to like a technology network effect. Yeah. And there's definitely a flywheel effect as well where, you know, I'm just looking at their verticals at the moment, Albert. Wines and spirits, fashion and leather goods, perfumes and cosmetics, watches and jewelry, and then you've got selective retailing and that's, you know, where Sephora sort of falls into. And really like at a high level, you can just look at those verticals and say, what's the common factor in all of that? It's basically a night out. You know, you go for a night out, you're drinking wine, spirits, you're wearing a good outfit, got perfume cosmetics on watches jewelry all that sort of stuff you know there's a very clear thesis behind it all which creates synergies as to why you know i might shop at one part of lvmh and then shop at another all for the same sort of purpose was there anything in those verticals which stood out to you i think like i thought you were going to say the common thread is just like rich people things (laughs) that's it that's it i think it's probably worth talking about the customer and then evolving that conversation into the age region more broadly because you're right these are if i look at the the houses that they have within it it's like wine and spirits fashion leather goods perfume jewelry watches like these are rich people high level disposable income things like if if you're if you're wealthy you are drinking nice alcohol like you're not going out and buying you know box wine and drinking that you're not buying cheap vodka or cheap gin you're you're drinking that you're drinking real champagne if you're rich you know you have nice bags you've got you know branded materials because you want to associate you know yourself with the values of the brand and then obviously like the watches and jewelry they're very subtle things the cosmetics they're they're like small flexes of wealth that that people like to show yeah, I, I think this is one to go a little bit deeper on. What I found interesting when I was sort of doing some of the research of LVMH is actually how they're they're kind of recession proof to an extent. Like usually when we think of retail and, you know, we're perhaps heading into a bit of a global recession at the moment, you know, a lot of the thinking is, well, people aren't going to go out and purchase um you know, things which are sort of just want items. They don't need them. They're just something that they might want. But on the, once you go to the higher, higher end of that spectrum, well, the very, very wealthy 
they're sort of recession proof. Like th- their income isn't really affected by the recession. They can still go out and buy the Givenchy bag or, you know, drink Moe Chandon. And that's sort of borne out in some of their figures is that, you know, the pandemic really affected them because stores had to close, et cetera, but the recession less so. So you can't just look at LVMH like you would any other retailer, any other producer. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think there was a report that was done a while ago, I think just at the tail end of the the 2008 GFC, that had luxury items still maintaining its particular level of volume throughout the GFC. I'm trying to find the report, but I remember reading uh, something very similar a while ago. Um, And it also coincides with the fact that a lot of people, particularly who buy these products, do come from, you know, a place of wealth, so they're they not impacted by the recession as much. But when you think about, like, ultra-wealthy people buying a ten dollars or $20,000 bag and, you know, they're valued at the millions and billions of dollars, even if they lose a couple of percentage points of their wealth, like, they still can afford the bag. And so, when it comes to whether they're going to buy a bag or whether they're going to eat, that's not really a consideration for them at all. No, and I think this is where we can pivot to Asia where, you know, the the thesis case is really simple there. One of the highest growth GDPs of any region. It's now like a billionaire factory. There's more billionaires in China than anywhere else. India growing, Southeast Asia growing the same way. It's not necessarily the middle class, which a lot of people focus on rising, which is true. And LVMH acknowledges that to a certain extent, they're the beneficiary of some of these splurge items, you know, a rising middle class that isn't buying multiples of these products, but maybe it's an anniversary gift or a birthday gift, sort of once-off purchases. But it's that higher spectrum of customers which are really blooming in Asia, these millionaires and billionaires, that they're capitalizing on. What it is about Asia, Albert, that you see really working for LVMH? Yeah, I think it's probably worth calling out that like not all of Asia is homogenous when it comes to like the rising middle class. Like obviously that that trend probably will continue, but let's kind of delineate like China versus other brand, uh, other countries versus Japan, which LMVH do delineate. I think the first call out is like the fact that China is an, or Asia as a whole is such a big part of LVMH's strategy. Like they've got. Uh, an incredible presence in Asia. They've got 600 more stores, about 1,700 stores in Asia. And to contrast this, they've got about 1,100 stores in Europe. So, even though the brand is historically European, started in Europe, the majority of their brands are European, they've just got such a crazy presence in Asia. Like, they have 50% more presence physically in Asia than Europe. So, that, that really stood out to me. It's like they're over-indexing in this region. Well, I mean, it just sort of, they're going where the money is. If you look at their revenue profile, 35% of their revenue is in Asia, excluding Japan, 70% of their revenue is in Japan. So if you combine that, 42% of their revenue coming from the Asia region, the United States is the next largest at 26%. Uh, Europe is about 15%, 20% if you include France, which they separate out. So really... The moneymaker is Asia region. And I, I think, you know, let's dive into that, Albert. How do you become successful in Asia? I think it's about product market fit, which touches on that point where you have to actually know your customer. You have to know that 
Asia is not homogenous. You can't just transplant something from one area of Asia into another, let alone from Europe into Asia. I think there was a really good comment from um, sort of an ex-CEO, I think, of the Asia Pack region for LVMH, where he was talking about, if you're just thinking about wines and spirits alone in Asia, you know, the North really, really like cognac, Hennessy. The South really like baijiu, like a, a sort of Chinese local liquor. There are regional differences there which really affect the products you sell. So how do you go about, Albert, thinking about this idea of product market fit and making sure you're launching the right products in the right areas? Yeah, I mean, product market fit is is a really hard thing to define and, and it's defined in- incredibly differently, but the particular vertical segments, etc. But really, you know, more broadly... A lot of people talk about product market fit as like the markets or your customers are pulling the product out of your business. Like they just can't get enough of it. You know, you're selling more than you can keep up with. The demand is much higher than supply. And so when it comes to Asia, you can really see that specifically in China. Like in in China, a lot of the consumers generally put like what they call positional value on luxury goods. So they look at luxury goods as a way to crystallize their own like status in society. So they see the values that LVMH has, like high-end luxury, you know, rich, wealthy. And by buying those brands, they crystallize their own values and then use that to reinforce their like societal status and identity. So like if I buy, if I'm, you know, general Chinese shopper, you buy like a Louis Vuitton handbag, you know, the classic like dark brown. It's got the the Louis Vuitton logo. It's like everyone's seen it. Um, I don't I see- know it now, but. <laughs> <laughs> I when, when I was working, in, when I was working in, in consulting, I would see a lot of people with Louis Vuitton um, bags because it was just like the classic status symbol in Sydney. Like the R.M. Williams boots. Like, like the R.M. Williams boots, but five times, ten times more expensive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is a really great point you're making and it's because part of the identity of the shopper, you know, people buy brands which they identify with, which consolidates their view of themselves. And on this point, you know, what's different between now and let's say 20 years ago, Albert? It's the obvious thing. It's social media. It's the fact that you can be on your phone. It's the fact that, you know, you buy a product, immediately you probably take a photo and you share it to everyone as that social proof that social capital that you're trying to, to get there. And the way which Louis Vuitton, the LM, LVMH is capitalizing on this is like a very concerted effort on brand influencers, brand ambassadors. And when you look at their lineup, like it's kind of interesting. You think of it like a sports team, Albert. If you compare their lineup to other fashion brands and houses, you know, they've got South Korean boy band BTS as a global ambassador, They've got the American sort of tennis superstar, Naomi Osaka. They've got Blackpink, another K-pop band where they've got, you know, across all of their sort of labels, one with um, Tiffany & Co., one with Dior. So really, they're making a concerted effort to get these high-profile Asian actors, singers, etc., to rep their brand, and it's clearly working. Yeah, I'm so glad you said this because I, I was reading some marketing information that was dissecting their brand. And so when they're when they're selling in China, the emphasis is really on like values. So like this is a luxury brand, and if you value luxury and wealth, that you'll buy this brand. 
and then that obviously cascades into that network effect of like you see one person you admire you know or you're a friend who you you think is wealthy and now they've got this bag you think you're wealthy you also buy the bag etc so the emphasis in china is like placed on values in korea and other parts of southeast asia you're like absolutely right like the emphasis is on celebrities and so there's like a really big top down approach where you've got k-pop stars like bts you've got like some filipino stars in the philippines who are actively partnering with LVMH, and then that cascades down to their fans. And so it's like a top-down influencer-driven marketing campaign rather than like a values campaign. Like, I want to be associated with these values, so I'll buy this, versus I look up to this person and I really like, you know, their music or their celebrity presence, so I'm going to buy this as well. It's, it's, it's very interesting how different the branding and the approach is in these countries. Yeah, and I think that's the nuance which you hit on at the start when you said Asia is not homogenous. And that's the sort of thing which will make or break your launch into a particular area or region. I'll just tack on an extra sort of strategy or way they're sort of marketing going about things. Obviously, a lot of these fashion houses have the sort of runway shows, which I never really got the idea of because sometimes, you know, what the people are wearing is absolutely ridiculous. The attendees are usually on this upper crust of uh, of societies so like you know how much are you really emphasizing your brand with such a small sort of clientele that's there but lvmh has made a clear view of just having these showcases having these shows shanghai various places in southeast asia over the past year it's almost like looking at the stores in a particular region looking at where they're launching these shows over the last couple of years you can see again emphasis on asia over europe and other areas yeah. How do you think this kind of plays out as like the middle class emerges on a country by country basis in Asia? Well, that's a hard question, Albert. But I think it's it's significant that they've split out Japan from Asia. So they've clearly got a focus on Japan as its own region, its own economy, its own sort of particular nuances that they want to go after. Um, China is obviously a big one for them. I think... Probably the way that they're going to go is obviously emphasize China, Japan, Korea, large populations, they're already very, very well established. And then that's going to sort of seep into some of the other countries. Like I know someone with Indonesian family and et cetera, just sort of looking at the social media there. In the same way that Australia gets its pop culture from America, increasingly the Asia region is getting their pop culture from Japan, Korea, and China. And so I think the fact that they're embedding themselves as being, you know, so fashionable, so ubiquitous in these areas will naturally have like a flow and effect to the Southeast Asia regions, even if they're not, you know, focusing primarily in each of those regions as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's also interesting when you overlay like the US or the British presence in Asia. Like Singapore is a great example of this because that's had like a heavy British presence throughout its entire life of as a country. And you can kind of see that in how they market in Singapore as well. Like it's obviously a very business-centric, wealthy city. And so there's a lot of kind of marketing around like um, Western model models and things like that. And most business people will have, you know, a LVMH product. They'll also go out and drink LVMH alcohol. 
I think I think about like the Philippines with its heavy US presence and, you know, the, those US brands which uh, LVMH has started to acquire like Tiffany mainly had market share over European brands, but that's really started to shift as like the Philippines also emerges from being a developed nation uh, into probably like a middle-class country. So, it is interesting to see like while there has historically been influence from other nations in these regions, they are still all converging on like the luxury goods as a key driver for the middle class. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to sort of transition a little bit from here. I mean, one last thing I'd sort of say on the Asia factor, because I think this is a common mis- misconception is, you know, supply chains in Asia. Um, you know, obviously China, there's been a lot of issues there, disruption. And I think when you look at that, that's actually highly commoditized goods, which are being produced in factories in China or Asia and then being shipped to America, for example. That's where there's real supply chain disruption. Interesting enough, it's sort of the inverse with a luxury brand like LVMH. A lot of their goods are produced in Europe and then getting shipped to Asia. So, you know, they've made comments that the supply chain risk for them is actually quite, quite small. So I just wanted to sort of flag that because it's it's an interesting switch on something that you might commonly think would be an issue. Yeah, no, that, that's a great call out, Dan. All right, Albert, where do you want to go to next? I think it's probably kind of worth talking about, you know, financial and market tailwinds in Asia. You know, we've kind of talked at a high level marketing. It's probably kind of worth calling out like, like why, why Asia in particular in terms of where their focus area is? Like what is it about you know, the Asia region that you can't necessarily see in other regions because there is still an emerging middle class in Europe, like if you, particularly if you're looking at uh, Eastern Europe. There is an emerging middle class in South America. But I think it comes down to like the emphasis on like status symbols and material wealth are completely different in those two regions versus Asia. And despite the trend of like a rising middle class, in a lot of other countries, you really just do see the emphasis on like a values-based buying in China, which then propels the middle class to buy, you know, LVMH products. I think that's true, but I might go sort of a different slant on it, Albert, which is just the idea of competition. Like if you go to Europe, there are thousands of these, you know, niche, high-end luxury brands you know these uh, what do they call them like these ateliers these maisons um like like boutique luxury brands correct correct and even in australia you see them like sometimes you'll go to a store which focuses on boutique brands and you're like geez i've never heard of any of these but if you google them you look them up they've got like a hundred year history and that i think is very much the fabric of the the context in europe not every one of those brands has the resources to go expand out into asia and so I think in many respects, you're just dealing with a lesser um, competitive pool. I think it's still highly competitive because you have big brands out in Asia fighting it out, but you don't have that long tail that you're fighting against. And, you know, when we talk about tech or something, you know, the long tail, sometimes you say you can have it. Like uh, some of these tech companies, they don't want to be dealing with the small customers, the mom and pop stores. They're happy to go after the really, really big clientele. But as a fashion brand, as a label, where so much of it is about individuality, the purchasing 
uh, thesis for so many customers is about getting a brand which matches my own. That long tail, I think, can really eat away at your your market share. So that's why I think going to Asia is just like a much more efficient prospect for some of these, uh, well, for LVMH, less competition, less of a long tail to fight against. For sure. I, I think I'm, I'm glad you brought up this notion of competition because that's really where LVMH shines because it can leverage, you know, the scale of network economies as a brand but also can just leverage the amount of capital it has. Like running a retail business is so capital intensive. You've got, you know, managing suppliers, warehouses, manufacturing, like all those things cost money. And so in order to scale a brand, you need to outlay a lot of capital. Because LVMH have got the process part pretty down packed, it helps them minimize the amount of capital outlay. And then furthermore, it kind of helps them draw down on the capital when they need to to do big things like acquisitions, to launch brands, to partner with other brands, to, to enter new markets. So that's really a key kind of differentiator because when they compete, they're obviously competing for on an individual basis for like, you know, market share, you know, share of body for like a better word. Like you can only wear one piece of clothing at a time. You generally only carry one bag, one wallet. So you're competing for share of body. But at a macro level, they're basically out competing because they've all got this like incredible set of powers that other brands don't have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that share of body, I think, is, is a really interesting paradigm to have to think about it. Partly true, obviously, people's wardrobes are full of, of clothes. So I think that's sort of like a, a, some flexibility built in there. Um, but yeah, just as you, you're, you're talking about that, Albert, where my mind was sort of drifting to was... You're right. There is this competitive tension between these brands. But I remember when I was working for a retailer, you know, during high school, the idea of, you know, this was a shoe store, had a couple of brands underneath the umbrella and the idea, oh, we don't have it, but hey, go over to the store next door. That sort of referral effect, I, I doubt it's particularly present in sort of the high-end luxury sort of um, retail end of the market. But you also realize that so many of these stores are lined up right next to each other. So you can really hop from one store to another to another all under the LVMH umbrella. So there is that interesting tension between each of the brands within the house of competitors, but there is some aspect that is mutually reinforcing. For sure. I mean, talking about competition even further, when you run a house of brands, the brand doesn't necessarily have to live forever. Like that's a key thing a lot of people don't realize with the House of Brands approach mm. is that part of the thesis is that when you need to, you can actually sunset and end the brand and that doesn't necessarily end the business. When you're, when you're running a pure player retail business, like a consumer business, say like Lululemon, if you decide to stop wearing tights, or selling tights, sorry, that, that's game over for the business. But if LVMH decide they want to sunset a particular brand, you know, I'll just use like Shandon as an example because people aren't buying Shandon anymore. That doesn't necessarily have a material impact on their business or their processing. And so it just means brands can have a more natural like life and you can sunset a brand when it's necessarily the right time to end its life rather than just pumping shitloads of money into marketing to sustain a brand. I love that call out, Albert. I love it a lot because I was reading an article on this on this exact point, particular to sort of the fashion industry, 
so much of these brands is wrapped up in the actual designer, you know, like Calvin Klein, Balenciaga, Alex McQueen, all of these brands have got people behind them, Marc Jacobs as well. So, you know, for some of these brands, and there's been examples of them, the shine really has gone off them as their designer has either left the brand or passed away or anything like that. And the idea that you can then fold that into one of your other brands, a sort of a natural life cycle, I think is very, very appealing. And it means that the brands can really stay true to, you know, a particular thesis that they have, you know, Balenciaga, very, very forward thinking, street chic. That's that's the brand which their customers come to know and love. If it starts to struggle, there's a pressure on that brand then to start changing its theme, its thesis, which isn't always healthy, I think. I think the idea that they can sort of naturally die at a particular point is really, really good for a fashion label. Yeah, I think a, a great example right now is Off-White. So, Off-White is partly owned by LVMH. And, you know, the, the founder of Off-White, Virgil Abloh, has passed away. But the brand obviously continues. And I think when you have a designer who does pass away, there is a, the tendency to end the brand because, you know, you, you may not realize the designer's vision. But also, you can still carry on. So, it works both ways in that you can choose to prolong or continue the life of a brand or you can choose to end the brand at the right time. And I think it really plays into LVMH's wheelhouse in that they can make either decision when they want and they've got enough capital and expertise to support either decision. I'm loving this free flow conversation now because it's just sparking ideas for me. And the, the one that just sparked to mind then was the idea of the collab which is you know so ubiquitous in these labels that they're collabing with one brand or another. And I'm thinking about how did Tiffany get Jay-Z and Beyonce for their sort of relaunch campaign? Well, LVMH sort of helped buy out Jay-Z's, I can't remember the exact name of it, but he had this sort of um, liquor business which they sold to LVMH. It's these sort of network effects with influencers, with labels, with designers, etc., which means that they can leverage more than the sum of their parts to get particular brand deals, to get particular collabs with other designers, etc., which all reinforce the business. So, for sure, and I think it's it's not just external collaborations because you can collaborate within the brands yep. of LVMH. I, I, you know, Off White again is an example, but you know they they collaborated with Louis Vuitton. I think that was pre um, Off White getting acquired by LVMH, but it's still a great example. Of, like you can continuously innovate, for lack of a better word, as a brand by launching new products or collaborating with other brands to increase your brand profile, and then it also lets you kind of play further down the customer chain. I'm going to keep kind of pulling on Off-White because I do like the brand a lot, uh, is that, you know, they've collaborated with, like, Ikea. And Ikea is generally associated with, like, you know, price-sensitive consumers. So, it also then accesses a whole nother set of customers without diluting the brand image. All right, Albert, we've been <laughs> we've been gassing up LVMH this whole time. I think it's time to go to verdicts. I mean, if we've got any criticism, let's throw them in now. But uh, 
What what are you thinking? Yeah, I think to me the criticism, and it would be really unfair if I didn't say this, is just like it is an incredibly capital intensive business. Like they've just got so many uh, capital outlay choices that they need to make and obligations they need to keep, like warehousing, leases for stores, like they're going to maintain their physical presence. Like about a third of their cost base is marketing and you have to sustain that because you have to keep up the halo effect that comes with being a brand. And that obviously kind of uh, makes you more efficient as you, uh, your sales and marketing become more efficient as you acquire more brands because, you know, you get more informed decision-making, you, you can leverage technology to make marketing decisions. But you have to sustain this cost. It's not really something you can switch off uh, like a lot of other companies can or could because it's a key part of maintaining their brand image. So that to me is a huge criticism of this business. Fair, fair. Um, yeah, I mean, the, I can only think of rebuttals now, but like the fact that they got $13 billion in free cash flow means that this you know acquisition of Tiffany is going to look real good in the next couple of years. Um, it's really hard to think of a brick-and-mortar type business like this, which has the cash printing ability that, that it has. So I agree with everything you said, but I think we're both on the same page. This is an incredible business. It's doing really well. Yeah, I mean, the only other criticism is that their stuff is too expensive and we can't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the beauty of it. They've got pure pricing control, don't they? They can essentially set the price and people still buy. Yeah, I think I think the last thing I probably want to say, and maybe we can have this conversation very quickly, is like well, the House of Brands approach versus like the D2C approach. So like D2C would be like Lululemon. Like and I know D2C is kind of the flavor of the month right now. How do you see that working out for LVMH? Well, the, the numbers bear out that it's been helpful, particularly during the pandemic and covid but it, it seems like the particular customers which they have much prefer that in-person shopping experience. Uh, you know, the fact that they've rebounded and had such a great year over the last year compared to 2019 and 2020 really bears out that they need that physical presence. Uh, and that's clearly their strategy as they've got all these stores, fashion shows, etc. Yes, I'm so glad you said physical presence. Have you ever walked into the Louis Vuitton store on George Street? There's always a fucking line. <laughs> there, there, there is always a fucking line. But they've got like a one-on-one -on -one personal shopping experience. So, there's always a line because they only admit a certain number of people so they can give them a high-touch like approach to customer service. And I think that's why direct-to-consumer hasn't necessarily worked for some of these um, brands because they don't want to dilute the like customer experience that comes with shopping from, you know, Louis Vuitton, et cetera. Yeah, and I think to a certain extent, other other businesses have come in and sort of filled that niche. Like you got Farfetch, which I think we talked about, didn't we? Um, oh, Setai, but very, very similar time. business, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you got some of these smaller players which are filling that niche. So, uh, you know, if they ever want to move into it, LVMH, they could, but I don't think that's a priority. Anyway, Albert, we've run long. Let's finish up here. Great business. Sponsor us. <laughs> Uh, all right. Thanks for listening to the Fresh Capital Podcast, a podcast about companies and investing told in a refreshingly simple way. We'll catch you again next week. See ya. Thank you for listening to another episode of Fresh Capital. 
Every week, we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn how companies operate and how investing works. Just a reminder, all information contained in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, financial, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Fresh Capital are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Any opinions expressed in the show are not recommendations or advice. Please consult a licensed financial professional before you jump in. As always, we look forward to seeing you next week. See ya.